correct of uh, God's work in creation is a remarkable compilation of testimonies detailing, in many regards, the Creator's ongoing intersection with His creation. It's remarkable for many reasons, not the least of which is the way in which it makes absolutely no attempt to whitewash the stories that it tells. It uh, sort of is as uh, the old movie title goes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of it's wrapped up in these stories. And when the disciple Matthew wrote his story about Jesus, the stories that he included were of this nature. And he follows that pattern exactly. And, and the text for our, our lesson today will illustrate that for you. So I want to ask you this question to sort of set the stage for our thinking. Have you ever really been so proud of yourself for saying just the right thing in just the right way at just the right time, kind of patted yourself on the back, and then almost in the next breath gotten it horribly wrong so that you experienced both of those within the same little time frame? In the Bible passage that you will hear in just a moment when Ethan comes to read for us, no less a figure than the Apostle Peter does this very, very thing. First, he makes an affirmation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And one can almost see the other disciples applauding. Finally, he got the answer right. And it's hard to tell how much time passes, but I suspect not very much. Between the next thing he says to Jesus, look, you've got to stop talking like this. You're going to get us all in trouble. So there's the affirmation. And there's the criticism, almost in the same breath. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have Jesus look at you as he looked at Peter and said, get away from me. You're making my life difficult. You sound more like Satan than you sound like one of my followers. Just go away. Following that stinging rebuke, Following that stinging rebuke, Jesus speaks a challenge to everyone, not just his disciples, but to everybody, to you and to me. No message about our life in Christ is complete without this message. Those who would follow me, he says, must begin here. It was a difficult word for Peter, to be sure, to hear and the other disciples, but I think it's also an awkward and harsh word for us to hear at times. In fact, when you've messed up, gotten it all wrong, with no hope of putting it right yourself, this is where you want to be, at the foot of this cross. Your Bible probably has a paragraph heading right about there that says, costly discipleship, as if there were really any other kind. Listen to this reading as Ethan reads to us from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. I'll be reading from Matthew 16, 13 through 23. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the, of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, 
but by Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he ordered his disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He said, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Has anybody ever asked you that question? Have you ever asked anyone that question? Suppose you turn to the person sitting next to you, assuming it's not your husband or your wife, and say, who, who do people say that I am? What kind of answer would you get? Who am I, Jesus asked. It's a question about identity. We hear a lot these days about identity. This is a question about Jesus' identity. He's almost saying, who do people think I am as a, as a person? Jesus is always on the move. By, this time we, by the time we get to chapter 16 in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has recorded 20 separate events of Jesus on the move. Words like, Jesus went from there, he departed from that place, he came to another place. Jesus is always on the move, and there's a group of people that are following him around. He puts his disciples on the spot, and he asks them this question. What's the word on the street about my identity? Who do people think I am? How many times have you looked across this room and either said to yourself or to somebody else, who is that? Who is that person? You know? And then we scurry to the picture board, only to find out that they have not yet had their picture taken. So... <laughs> The next time we have our photographer in place, you ought to do that. Identities matter to us. We want to know who people are. We like to put names and faces together. Here, I think Jesus is asking a bigger question. What sense are people making out of what I am doing? That's what he's asking. He's not saying, do they know my name? And he's not asking for Jesus as an answer. What sense are they making out of it? Who, who am I in the big picture? And the popular word on the street is that Jesus is, well, a ghost. Embodiment of people who are long since dead. That's interesting if you think about it. Why would they think that? Why would they think, knowing that John the Baptist is dead, that Jesus is a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Well, John, relatively recently deceased, he lost his head for confronting King Herod about sleeping with his brother's wife. It's perhaps the high moral tone of Jesus' teaching that sounded so much like, this, like John that this misidentification was easy. When he talks, he sounds a lot like John, they must have been saying. Well, what about Elijah? 
or Jeremiah. God's prophets in Israel a long time ago. Perhaps it's because, like Jesus, they were both usually in trouble with religious leaders. And in many ways, Jesus was a trouble magnet. Almost everywhere he went, while there was some good news, there was always bad news as well. Jesus seems to be a person who reminds people of somebody else. And I think today, really, perhaps we do the same thing. We make Jesus, or at least the risk is there, of making Jesus out to be who we want him to be, rather than taking him at his word for who he was then and is now. And by mistaking his identity, we miss out on knowing him and really on being known by him. So against the backdrop of this confusion about the popular word about him, the question of identity takes a personal turn. To all of his disciples, he says, looking them in the eye, who do you say that I am? Enough about those people. Who do you say that I am? This is a penetrating question. And one can imagine the disciples having already offered the wrong answer multiple times, kind of looking at their feet like we do in class sometimes if we're too close to the teacher. We don't, by not looking, we won't get called on. They kind of, finally, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the God who is alive. Or in the more classic translation, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And all seems well enough. Peter gets a blessing. The blessing comes with a promotion. And Peter's words become the foundation of the Christian mission in the world. But as it turns out, getting the answer right on that question matters. The truth about his identity, about who he is, becomes the bedrock foundation of the communities that will be raised up around the world for millennia. We call them churches. Those things are the root and substance of the church. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the confession many of us have made ourselves. But at this point in the story, the conversation moves from questions and answers to statements and arguments. It moves from, who am I, to let me tell you what's going to happen to me, and Peter will have none of it. And so he begins to argue with Jesus about his identity. That can't be who you are. You must be mistaken. God would never go along with that. It's a challenge as to who Jesus is and what he is about. This announcement of the impending death of Jesus is more than Peter can stand, even though it is followed immediately by the promise of resurrection. So again, having said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, which was the right answer, he says, Lord, you've got to stop talking like this. It's bad PR. Your heavenly Father doesn't like it. It doesn't fit in with how we see you, and truth be told, it makes the rest of us look a little foolish, like we're following a man with a death wish. If it's all the same to you, cut it out. I've elaborated a little bit on Peter's response, but that's the gist of it. Just stop it. And this man who only moments before made the affirmation that rings around the world today, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, has now made a gaffe equally large. And he gets, dressing, he gets a dressing down in Scripture that is the parallel of few others. You sound like the devil himself, Jesus says to him. What you say will undermine the faith of other people. 
you're more deeply committed to your own agenda than you are to God's agenda at work in all of us. This story about identity is also a story about truth. Does it really matter who Jesus is? Does it matter who we think he is? Does it matter who we say he is? Apparently, it does. Well, what a story. But as you know, I hope you know, as bad as it seems, we should be glad that Matthew's included this story in his account of the life of Jesus because it reminds me that nobody gets it right all the time. I don't, and you don't, and not even St. Peter. So what are the take-homes from this? Let me suggest four to you. I suggest that we together make every effort to center our lives in the identity of Jesus. If you ask, who am I? What do you want the answer to be? If you ask someone who knows you fairly well, who am I? what, What do people think of me? What kind of answer do you want to come back to you? What you believe about Jesus doesn't change the truth about Jesus. We cannot remanufacture him as the Jesus we wish he were. The identity of Jesus does not consist in his miracles, though those are important. It consists in the cross and the resurrection and his having been ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us and his identity consists in his promised return and the judgment that purifies. So the question for all of us is, who are you? Who are we? Who am I? What do people say about us? When we center our lives in the identity of Jesus, we will have taken up our own cross. As the graphic said, those who would follow me must begin here. We will anticipate our own coming resurrection and live like we believe it. We have a lot of ill people in this congregation. All of us, sooner or later, will be where they are. Let us affirm in our life of the cross that death is not really the end of anything. It's the beginning of what comes next. That was true for Jesus. It will be true for us. And when our life is rooted in the cross, we will honor the continuing ministry of Jesus through the equipping ministry of his Holy Spirit. That was true for them. It will be true for us. And we will live in anticipation of the coming new heaven and new earth, about which we should be saying a whole lot more. Another take-home, I think, is this. Living out of the identity of our Lord, we will recognize the futility of arguing with Jesus about anything. It just doesn't make any sense. When the words of Jesus cut across the things that we want to do or call us to a lifestyle that we find burdensome, do you ever hear yourself arguing with Him? Well, Lord, I, I know what you said, but in my case, it's different. You don't know, of course he does, my struggle. You don't know what I put up with. And so we find ourselves cutting across purposes with him. I'm not talking about honest confusion. We don't know for sure what he meant. All of us make that mistake. But do we harbor a selfish preference that, that leads us to do what the Apostle Peter did and end up arguing with Jesus over who he is, the one who gives us sound teaching for living. It isn't difficult to find people who've created a personal Savior out of the Savior of the world, a Jesus made in their own image, who agrees with them, by the way, on most things. 
A Jesus who wants, oddly enough, what they want. A marriage on their terms. A church on their terms. A Jesus who sees morality the way they see it and who would vote just the way they vote. Have you ever heard people say, well, I can't believe in a Jesus who would say, and then they utter something that really cuts at cross purposes with their life. Does your life say it? When you play the recording of your life over the last five or ten years, do you hear yourself arguing with Jesus? Each of those mutations and a hundred just like them constitute that argument with Jesus. And it's an argument that Peter couldn't win and neither will we. Here's another thing to kind of jot down and take home with you. Be thankful when you get life's answers right. And we do. Most of the time, most people want to do the right thing. Most people really do. Celebrate your successes. Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you. That means you're made more like your Creator. Being a Christian, following Jesus, does not mean that we know everything there is to know. But there is a goal to learn. A disciple is one who imitates her master, who is absorbing from Jesus the words that instruct one in life. We gather with other disciples to learn. We have a personal plan of Bible study. If not Bible study, at least Bible reading. Are you getting it right some of the time? When you do, you'll discover that you get life right most of the time. And you should congratulate yourself when you do that. There's no reason to get down on ourselves when we make mistakes or fall short. That's true for every one of us in this room. Well, let's celebrate those times when we get it right. And I would say one final takeaway. Be patient with yourself when you get it wrong. And we all do. I'm glad Matthew used this story about Peter in his larger story of Jesus. Peter had successes and he had classical failures. I've heard of people who complain about being put off in Bible class because some people seem to know a lot more than they do. Everybody was there at some point. We're all learners. We're disciples. That's what disciples do is they soak it up. They learn. So I would leave you with a challenge and two questions. And I think they're questions that each of us must answer for ourselves. First of all, who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? By your words? By the way you shape your life? Is he one option among others? Or is he the one to whom you submit your life? And secondly, in what ways might your life be an argument with Jesus? Does his call to personal morality seem restrictive? Yes, Lord, but you really don't understand. I... Does his call and claim on your time and money, the way you'd use it in your neighborhood to improve the lives of people around you, seem overly intrusive? Well, good, because it is. 
Does his version of what it means to follow him seem overly costly? That is the nature of Christian discipleship. God is looking for responses from us, all of us. So I hope that today, as you have listened, you have taken that little inventory, you have asked yourself, does my confession of Jesus reflect the truth about Jesus? Am I ready to lay aside those ways in which I argue with the Master and get on with the business of living God's life in me in the world? Whatever your response, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.